You're listening to the Premier Podcast Network. Foundation Radio is brought to you by 10th Ward Barbershop. Serving the historic 10th Ward in downtown Lawrenceville, 10th Ward Barbershop is a full-service barbershop offering quality haircuts, beard trims, and hot shaves. Adam gets his hair and beard trimmed by the owner of the shop, Ryan Kane, and he loves the laser point precision cuts and lineup he provides to him and countless other satisfied customers. But you don't have to take Adam's word for it. WWE superstars Corey Graves and The Fiend Bray Wyatt frequent 10th Ward for all their hair and beard trimming needs. Right now, all all cuts and trims are by appointment only. So head over to their website at 10thwardbarbershop.com and book your appointment now with Kane, Jordan, and the rest of the team at 10th Ward Barbershop. That's 10thwardbarbershop.com. And we thank them for supporting the podcast. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Foundation Radio is brought to you by The Dugout. The Dugout provides custom quality apparel at an affordable price. Modern style mixed with classic designs, you'll find retro t-shirts brought into the 21st century. Adam has several of his favorite t-shirts in rotation from the team at The Dugout, including customized Dudley Boys, Prince in the Revolution, and the Notorious B.I.G. t-shirts. Right now, if you purchase your items through their Etsy site and use promo code FOUNDATION, you'll receive 15% off your entire order. That's right, 15% off your entire order. Follow them on Instagram at The Dugout Brand. Follow the link on their Etsy shop and use your promo code FOUNDATION for 15% off your entire order. The Dugout, custom quality apparel at an affordable price. world and welcome to foundation radio my name is adam bernard thank you so much for joining me today on this episode my guest needs no introduction he is mr monday night and the whole fucking show rob van dam rob how are you sir i am excellent very <laughs> that's, that's better good. than ever that's good to hear man uh, i wanted to say thank you again and also i wanted to thank you on behalf of the entire wrestling community for being the innovator of the modern wrestling style, which I know you don't get a lot of thanks about. So I want to make sure I thanked you at the top of this interview uh, and to say thank you on behalf of all of those wrestlers who are bad imitations. So <laughs> I, I appreciate that. I figure most of the uh, recognition will come uh, post-mortem. <laughs> which is a shame, man, which sucks because I feel like I feel like that in my personal life, too. Like, I feel like we don't give the people who are important enough to us the flowers that they deserve while they're here. And it's just, uh, yeah. you know, it's just this really weird thing. Like, I don't know if people are just uncomfortable about giving people props or being honest, but I don't know. What do you attribute that to? I think that's just human nature. I mean, it's the same thing if you think about the funerals you go to. You know, you'll travel to go see a relative that's dead, even though you didn't see him for years when he was alive. Right. You know, and it's, 
it's kind of the, you know, it's the same thing. You want to, you know, you want to pay respects, but you don't want to do it 24 seven. Right. Right. Well, let me just say too, uh, growing up, you were one of my favorite wrestlers of all time. I enjoyed watching all of your matches. So this is a really, this is a big honor for me to have you on the show. But I, uh, I do feel a lot though, that a lot of these guys are bad imitations because there isn't the psychology that you had in the ring. Like when you did your, your move set, what do you attribute the lack of the psychology to now in modern wrestling? Or do you think that there is a lack of that now? Uh, I, I, I do, you know, it's definitely, uh, changed and, uh, it's a lack of the, uh, old school fundamentals, you know, like when, when I got trained by the original Sheik, he was no high flyer. You know what I mean? I had to do his kind of wrestling, which was all about getting your opponent to the ground, trying to pin him, trying to pin his shoulders to the mat every chance we got. And then I had to learn how to sneak in a backflip or a spin here and there uh, around that. And so that's what made my stuff more compatible. Like when I was in, I was in all Japan, uh, Stan Hansen used to uh, give me shit when I was real young. You know, I started at 22 in all Japan and Stan, he would see me doing all this, the flips. And then he would, he would, uh, he would give me shit. Like before a match, we'd be talking and he'd say, well, we'll let Claude get in there and do all his shit. And then we'll try and tag me in and make it believable again. You know, I always call me Claude, but <laughs> anyway, um, I got that kind of a vibe for a while, but then with Stan, I was in the ring with him and then he realized it wasn't hold my foot. Let's count to three and then you throw me and I'll do a backflip out of your hand. Like, like we're not working together. It wasn't like that at all. I shouldered him in the corner. I did a backflip. I ran at him, put my boot in his face. And, and afterwards, you know, he told me I gained his respect. He was like, wow, I, I, I never seen that up close before. You were there and then you disappeared. I didn't know where you went. And, you know, he was, Stan has always been blind as a bat, but, um, I, I think that's what makes the difference. You know, these guys, grew up watching me and some of my peers, but they didn't have the old school mentality drilled into their head. So they just kind of like imitated what they thought was fun. And then, you know, the competition of it is something that I think becomes less and less as the original foundation of the old boys club the behind the doors of secret society if that changes into more of a uh, equal opportunity um, work safe environment we're going to the style change right right do you think there's a way to get back to that old school like the old boys mentality inside of wrestling because I feel like there's it's just there is a component as a longtime lifelong fan for me there's a component that's missing from the in-ring action and when I think about it, like a lot of times when you watch a lot of this older wrestling, a lot of it doesn't, there was no scripted appearance to it, right? It sounds like you guys were just in the ring, calling it on the fly, getting it done, making it believable. So if you thought, like if I were to ask Rob Van Dam, what do you think would bring it back to that level? What do you think could be done to get back there? I think that it would take a completely separate wrestling organization that uh, only used the wrestlers that were trained and understood that style and then have to bring nobody else in, you know, like uh, whenever 
I wrestle somebody that's more from uh, now generation. Some of their ideas that they have, you know, it just, it, it, I can't, I can't, um, I can't connect with them. I can't relate, you know. And when I watch it too, you know, and that comes from watching somebody take four power bombs and then sell standing up into, you know, uh, whatever, you know, a kick in the stomach and that, that move I hate that, uh, where I can't remember what it's called now. <laughs> But I do the sunset flip into a power bomb, and the guy jumps and whatever. But the whole thing, you know, it's like um, it, it's. But it's all of that. I think existed before, but it was like a, it was all like little aspects that now are the majority of it. You know, like you could sneak in some stuff here and there if you needed to, but now that's taken over. Yeah, I, uh, I def, I think is it the Canadian Destroyer? Is that the one that you're talking about? Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Not, yeah, I, I I don't enjoy it. First time I wrestled uh, Pentagon, he wanted me to do that to him. I'd never seen it. Never seen it. I'm like, dude, nah, let's see something. Oh, please, please, it's so good, big pop. Oh, you know, I'm like, bro, it meant so much to him that um, I, you know, I did it in the match. And then, like, how, what kind of a move is it when I'm the one giving it to him and I don't even know, have to know what the fuck I'm doing? You know what I mean? <laughs> and that's the way it comes across to me, too. So that's why I don't like it, but it's also very uh, symbolic of today's style. Yeah, I uh, I definitely feel like there's a there's a layer missing there when you watch again, like when you watch it, that just the excitement and the passion isn't there. And I honestly, I could sit here and talk about wrestling all day, but really, what I wanted to talk to you about today was marijuana and your. Uh, being on the front lines of this, really, I mean, you've been an advocate for marijuana for as long as I can remember. Um, I remember when I smoked my first joint. Tell me about the time that Rob Van Dam, when he smoked his first joint and how that created. There you go, man. I love it. I wish I had one right now. But tell me about like where your love from, you know, for marijuana came from and, and where how it started. What was the genesis for you? Well, um, the, when I first smoked it, it was just complete peer pressure. You know, I've uh, I've told this story uh, a few times, but I turned 21 on a uh, wrestling trip in Jamaica and uh, the other guys that were there, they were all so excited because the ganja was plentiful, you know. And I I was just out of high school, you know, basically, by a couple of years and was totally told that that was um, a bad hallucinogenic, just like acid and PCP. It was all Schedule 1, the most dangerous drug with no value whatsoever. But, but then, you know, I, I realized that some of the guys I looked up to that were in really good shape, would uh, use cannabis, and that gave me enough reason to question it. You know, uh, my first time, we were all sitting in a, a bungalow in Jamaica, and I didn't mean to be sitting in rotation. I was, uh, I remember I was eating a hamburger, and the joint came around, and I was like, oh, no, no, I'm good. And uh, guys, uh, I don't even know if you know Jimmy Backlin, he was also um, Jimmy Del Rey in WWE, this guy, uh, and Coconut. Kid, Mark Starr, a bunch of these guys that were around back then, but mostly Jimmy. He was like, hit it, you fucking prima donna, hit it. It's not going to kill you. Everyone else hit it. Fucking hit it. And, you know, he pressured me into it, and I hit it. Uh, hit it once more, and when it came back around from the same kind of uh, influence, and uh, I didn't enjoy it the first time. You know, I was paranoid. I was staring at the wall thinking, oh, my God, now if I wasn't uncomfortable around all these guys before, you know, now what the fuck? And, um, so it was a little while later 
I was bouncing, um, still 21, not that much later, but I was bouncing at a bar and one of, one of the other guys would, uh, smoke. The band would smoke that was at the bar. Um, and just hanging out with them, you know, I started, uh, started smoking a little, a uh, little more and a little more and started, uh, started becoming something that, uh, that I enjoyed. It was probably five, maybe, well, no, it was probably four or five years in that I started advocating because I started realizing that most of the pushback was bullshit and everything that I was looking up really seemed like information that people should know that that was purposely hidden. And uh, back then everybody smoked cigarettes and I was learning these guys are killing themselves with cigarettes and they're pot shaming me and they don't realize marijuana is going to actually extend their life uh, expectancy. Don't know how they're going to die, but they could live longer. And that's still something that's uh, ahead of its time. People don't all know that yet, but, but, but we do know the cigarettes kill one out of two long-term users and marijuana doesn't have the toxic level to cause fatality um, in anybody. So uh, I really started feeling kind of like a Bible thumper. Like I had this information I had to get on. I had to tell people and, you know, I still get pushed back from it, but it's a different world now. You know, anybody that thinks they scored a touchdown by calling me pothead, who cares? Hundreds, if not thousands of people that I've actually helped makes me feel uh, pretty good about sharing that useful information. Well, I think too, when you mentioned it now, it was going to be in my part of this. One of the things I was going to ask you about was, you know, people were dunking on you for years. You already use a pothead and he's this and he's that. But like, honestly, I don't know how else to ask this, but like, how does it feel to be right about it? You know, like how many years later removed? Like, how does it feel to be basically proven correct and being on the front lines instead and the runs right side of history rather? Well, I mean, there, there is some vindication with it, but I always knew that I was right. So it's not like there was any. Uh, any surprise reward for me. I just knew that eventually morality would win. I mean, as soon as I started looking into it, you know, way back in uh, 36, 37, when they first prohibited marijuana, it was all based on lies. Right. It was all, it was all bullshit. And, and just that alone should give us enough reason to revisit it. You know, they had racial um, intentions to drive Mexicans and blacks out, and they were the ones that smoked it. We had William Randolph Hearst losing money on uh, the, the the paper business because he had all these trees that he would make money off of growing and cutting down 20-year-old trees. Marijuana, hemp, cannabis, you can grow an annual crop. If you manipulate the lights, you can grow a full crop in 90 days, and, and, and it's superior. It's better for the environment to process it. Anyway, I learned that the reasons that it was prohibited were all for just so the rich could get richer. You know, Rockefellers with fuel, the pharmaceuticals, alcohol, and tobacco, they all spend so many millions of dollars to, to campaign against cannabis, they all stand to lose the money and, and they don't get, they don't get to put the tax money in their pocket. People think, why don't we legalize it? We'll make money off the revenue. The one percenters that I'm mentioning, these people that, that, you know, uh, lobbied against it and really rule the world and, and keep it prohibited. Uh, they, they don't get, they don't all get your tax money. I mean, some of the federal reserves, I mean, that goes to the bankers for sure. 
uh, and they are in that percentage. But the more I looked into it, I just figured morality would definitely win. Everything made sense. It's the most dangerous drug, Schedule 1, but it can't kill anybody. You know, that was one fact that I just thought, I think if I got that out, people would uh, really find that interesting. And, and by the way, people have tried to get the information out over the years, and it's been hidden. You might find this interesting, but uh, in 1947, Mayor LaGuardia, he told uh, Harry Anslinger, hey, look, if you want me to prohibit this marijuana in New York, let me test it. Let me test your theories about everything. And he tested it. He ran a test. And everything that he learned from the test reboot, <laughs> debunked all of the bullshit. You know, he said it's, there's no alarming rates of, of kids increasingly smoking it in school. There's no uh, there's no addictive qualities. Uh, it, it's not even recommended to uh, keep this uh, from from people on the controlled substance. So what did Harry Anslinger do, who is the, the head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics? He, he, he took the, uh, you can look this up, look up LaGuardia Commission Report. It's a great, it's a great little read in education. Uh, he, he buried it. He buried the report and banned all future testing on marijuana forever. Wow. So just recently we've started looking at it again because it's getting quasi legal. And now we're learning it doesn't just get you high. You can separate all these cannabinoids and you got CBD and you got CBD. BN, you got CBG, you got over a hundred different cannabinoids that um, all can do different things alone in combination. There's a science to it we've been deprived of for so long, and that's because people like the pharmaceutical industry have so much to lose. Right. I mean, I can even remember being a kid, being in sixth grade and in the D.A.R.E. program and learning about how marijuana basically being equated to using heroin or crystal meth or any of these things. And I was just like, wow, that's that seems really crazy to think about on face value as I got older and started to become you know, a little bit more knowledgeable and thinking about it like schedule one drug. That seems really bizarre. That seems very strange why it's in a schedule one. But then you, you had mentioned to it, you alluded to it a little bit there as far as the war on drugs. I mean, we know that there's evidence that it systematically targets and disproportionately targets people who are black, um, underprivileged communities, minority communities, which is another reason why a lot of these laws won't change. And I think it's I think it's detrimental to us. I can share a story with you. My best friend's dad uh, was in a car accident many years ago. Hips were destroyed. His back was fucked up and he took a, a copious amount like this, this regimen of painkillers and opiates once marijuana was, so I'm, I'm in Pennsylvania. So once, once it was medically cleared in Pennsylvania, he got on a regimen of marijuana. Guess what, Rob? He's off of all of his pills. And not only that, his, his joint mobility is better. His muscle movements are better. He doesn't have the hip pain and the, the back pain that he used to have anymore. And it's because of the medical effects of marijuana. And it's just, it's crazy to see that in real time and still have people talk about how, oh, well, it's this terrible drug. It's this terrible thing. And it's just, it's really quite something to, to, to learn all of those things and see it activated in real time. Yeah. You know, I, I got a couple of things to say to that. One, a schedule two, which means safer for you and for the environment. That's where you find mass and cocaine. So this, the, the whole controlled substance list, uh, Nixon made that back in 1970. Before he made it, he did the same thing LaGuardia did. He said, let me uh, send out some people. But he didn't have the same interest as LaGuardia. He had, you know, he wanted to, he wanted to find um, that Anslinger was correct, but that's not what he found. Now, 
look up the uh, Shafee report and, and you'll see this uh, 1970. Same thing. It's not addictive. It's not dangerous. If you smoke too much, you might fall asleep. It helps people. What did he do? He buried it. And then he made the Controlled Substance Act. And marijuana was supposed to temporarily be a Schedule One until the uh, this report was, um, you know, factualized and, and confirmed. But they never went back. So now... Ever since 1970, we have the same, the same categorization and people know so much more about cannabis now. Most people probably don't even believe it's a schedule one. It sounds like bullshit. It really does. When you think about it and you look at faith, you look at the rest of the, the, the list. It's like, how is this, how is this even still a thing? Like, it just doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but some people still, like I said, they think they, they think they fucking, uh, score a touchdown, you know, but they go, Rob's so stoned, he probably doesn't know where he's at. And, you know, whatever. That's part of the culture. That's part of uh, uh, making light of something that was made too serious. And, you know, the thing that gets me, and I don't, you know, I got to I gotta toe the line as far as, well, no, I don't. Fuck the line. <laughs> I just, you know, I, I'm not, like, trying to come out in a, in a with any kind of a uh, um, uh, political statement or not, but... One thing I've noticed, because I'm an observer, that's what that's what I do, and that's uh, that's how I notice that I'm one of a kind. People don't care that hundreds of thousands of people every year, just in America, have been imprisoned over a plant, a plant that grows that's not even toxic, that that's that's basically. Uh, almost harmless the worst part about it is the law but for years hundreds of thousands of people uh getting their lives destroyed get their houses taken their dogs the family shot sometimes they get killed um closing down the the businesses dispensaries uh and and besides the fact you know that we spend uh you know hundreds of millions to 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 fight it over all these years people don't even care about that if it doesn't affect them but all of a sudden, there's something that people could do that could possibly save everybody from this crisis that's going on. And now people want to stick up for their rights. People are like, I'll die before I get that jab. I mean, that, I guess that's your right. It's your body. But, uh, but, but it's not even that they're afraid of the, of the, um, of the, of the, um, what do you call it? The, the cure thing. Well, <laughs> the, 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 the vaccine. They're not afraid of the vaccine. Yeah. Some of them aren't even scared of that. It's the principle. Like they don't want to fold on someone telling them that they have to do this thing. And, and it's like, I feel like, you know, Hey, pick your battles. You know, I mean, yeah. uh, I, I agree. I don't want to be, I don't want to live in a communist country and shit like, but if there's a uh, crisis like this, like a pandemic and it's got like the highest, um, uh, reports of, of deaths and it's lowering our life expectations just because of all these bodies being carried out and they have something and said, Hey, everybody, everyone needs to do it or it'll spread. Is that really the time to stand for it and say, wait a minute, I'm an individual. So uh, that's how I feel about that. By the way, I, I, I was born in 1970. I got this fucking, uh, Oh, you got well, the smallpox shot. Yeah. Look yeah, at that right there. Yep. Did I have a choice over that? Fuck no. 
you did it because it was the right thing to do. And I've, I've said this a couple times on the program, like my thought process on everything is what's going to create the most amount of good for the most amount of people. And if that right. means that me and my wife and my kids, we go get our shots and we get it done. We wear a mask in public. Like, I don't give a shit. I don't care. And again, I'm not trying to get political or anything, but I do understand the context of what you're saying. The point yeah. being is that this is not the time to be autonomous, Right. But you want to be autonomous to people who smoke weed. You want to be autonomous to people who do sex work. You want to be autonomous. You want to have all of these objections to these things that are, quite frankly, other people's business, but also with marijuana having the medical or the medicinal value and the medicinal purposes. Now everybody's up in arms and we want to throw our hands up and say, oh, wait, no, 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 we can't do that. So, no, I totally agree with that. I think it's bullshit. I think it's a it's an unvalid or it's an invalid argument. And I think it causes more distraction to the actual point where we have a system now where it is legalized in at least half a dozen states completely. And it's two thirds of the country now has some form of legalized marijuana or medicinal marijuana, rather. And we have people who have cottage industries on CBD and, and different marijuana farms and things. But you still have a disproportionate number of people, people in California who are in jail for life sentences because of the three strike rule over probably an eighth or a gram. You know, and it's like it doesn't make sense. So how do you jive that? How do you justify that in the long term? And that these are questions that I would want to know answers to, right? And I'm sure you do as well. Right. So, the, but the way that I look at that, you know, just like uh, people would ask me if I felt um, personally attacked or, or, or violated because when I got busted for the possession of marijuana, I had to drop the WWE championship, the ECW championship a little while later. Jack Swagger, I think, got busted for marijuana. I don't know if he maybe failed a test. I, I don't know what his situation was, but the fans were all over like, hey, th- he still gets to go to WrestleMania? That's not fair. I kept saying, this is progress. You know what I mean? I, I, I was a sacrificial lamb, but we're moving in the right direction. I mean, the fact fact is, if, if you go back just, um, holy shit, 50, let's say – a little, let's say 55 years. Guess what? We had segregation. Like black people were not allowed to hang out with white people. They use our doors and drinking fountains and restrooms. Go back a few years before that, you know, and, and we used to own black people. You, you couldn't, you know, it's just, that's, it's a movement and people that only live in the now, they seem to be, uh, lacking an understanding of that. And so they're just blown away. <clears throat> Their mind is surprised by every little thing they do. So they cancel somebody from culture. And it's a really sensitive, you know, nerve, nerve friendly kind of a world right now. And, uh, you know, it's probably for better in a lot of ways and maybe, maybe not so much in, in other ways. Right. I think, again, it's contextual, right? Everything should be put into proper context and looked at in a way that is beneficial long term. You know, you can't go back and judge blazing saddles for the type of language and comedy that they use then, but you can certainly put that in now. But I'm glad to hear that you don't look at, you know, because I'm sure that was that was a really big deal. I mean, you attained the top level, the elite level of the company only to lose it over a pop bus. I'm sure that was really frustrating for you, but it seems like you have a really positive viewpoint on that. Like, listen, don't don't tell me all of this shit. Like, yeah, it sucked and it was a terrible thing. But now that it happened to Jack Swagger and it's happening to other folks, if I have to be the sacrificial lamb, then so be it. Right. I mean, that's that's what I'm getting from this. People like me and uh, Michael Phelps, who got busted with the water bond that uh, changed the perception 
and also help change uh, the laws eventually. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so yeah, uh, I mean, I definitely dropped the ball on uh, Vince's plans, you know, and that's a, that's a shame, but that was part of my path, part of my story. A lot of fans like to say, imagine if you, if you, if you wouldn't have uh, been, been a pothead though, and you wouldn't have got busted, would I have made it that far if I hadn't been smoking for the last 30 years? I mean, what, what all do you want to change in my past and find out where I'm at now? You know what I mean? So that's how I look at it. And also, too, I mean, you, it's, I'm glad that you mentioned that as well, because I know that you've referred to marijuana as, a, as an athletic enhancer and you're 51 now. You're still in fucking incredible shape, dude. You're still doing a lot of the same uh, splits and movements that you were doing as a younger man in the ring. How much of that do you attribute to your marijuana use going back? you know, 30 years? Well, um, I will give it a lot of credit. You know, I think that, um, there's, there's, there's lifestyle, there's genetics, you know, and, um, as far as lifestyle goes, you know, I've stayed in condition. I've stressed a whole lot. And, um, the number one enemy to human health is stress. And I see so many people that are so stressed out. And that's that's more normal. That's more the status quo is to have a, a life that isn't as wonderful. Not not everyone has a five-star fantasy life. You know what I mean? And, and I know that. And, and I'm very grateful for, for where I'm at. Um, but I think regular people... You know, they, they hate their family, they hate their job, they hate their car, they hate their life, whatever. I mean, some of it's like miserable. They, they feel like, you know, they're victimized by, by life and, they're, and, they're, and they grudge their way through it. Uh, those, those kind of people, uh, yeah, for them, 35 is old. You grow up and your dad at 35 can barely get out of the chair and his belly hangs onto his knees and he's lost all his hair. Then, then I get where you, you get that impression. That, that's the standards that you have, you know, but I don't live by anybody else's standards. That's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a one of a kind and, um, smoking cannabis definitely helps deal, uh, with the stress. It helps discourage stress from setting in. I don't deal well with stress when I have something. Um, uh, on my mind that's uh, distracting me that um, it's something I almost have to fix or get rid of or learn to be okay with because um, I can't have a lot of stuff on my mind and still function like I do and still vibrate the way that I do. Right. I, I, I suffer from, you know, an anxiety and, and depression issues and things of that nature. And I've tried a lot of different methods to try to get through that, you know, a lot of like the talking to myself and reassurance. And I'm on a specific anxiety medicine right now, which I would like to come off of because it makes me feel weird, right? It makes me dizzy, makes me not myself. Um, and I'm, I'm interested in trying the medicinal marijuana to see if it would have an impact on me as an individual. But a lot of times you're right. Like we just, we, we sit in our holes and we stew and we don't do the work in order to make us better people and well-adjusted. And it sounds like you have a really good process of sort of weeding all that stress out of your life. And I feel like that's a big reason why you are where you are right now. I mean, you're arguably one of the biggest professional wrestlers of all time. You have an incredible wife. You have this incredible CBD company. It's just, it, it's pretty amazing to see it. Yeah. Uh, I'm always busy, always uh, working on stuff and that keeps me optimistic because I've always got stuff that I'm excited about that's just around the corner and that seems to never change. You know, uh, I, I think for the most part that we do um, get the life that we manifest and, and there's always exceptions. You know, I can imagine people that are um, not as fortunate uh, feeling like 
you know, helpless to, to the pathology if I just lay it out there and, and make it sound easy. But, um, but really, like, we're all where we're at. You know, right now is always the starting point of what we've got left. And so it's up to us what we do with it. And I don't think that there is an exception to that. No, I don't think so either, because we are ultimately at the end of the day, we are responsible and for our own realities. Right. Again, like I said, I can sit here and bitch about everything that's going wrong in my entire life. But here I am hosting a show talking to Rob Van Dam right now. You know what I mean? Like, it's just it's 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 your perception of reality that's actually going to become reality at some point. And if you don't get control of yourself, you're never going to have control of anything else. I'm a big believer in that as well. But I also I mentioned your wife. I want to talk about Katie Forbes a little bit here. Um, When you talk about her, I've heard heard you talk about her in interviews and and things like that. I, I can feel the excitement and the love that you have for her that comes through. And it's exciting, man, because as someone who's married, you know, you're in this great relationship and you want to share your life with this person. I know that you've mentioned that you feel like she saved your life. And tell me a little bit more about the influence that she has on your life and what makes it, what makes that dynamic between the two of you so wonderful. Yeah. Um, it's, it's awesome to know how experienced I am at 50 well, we've been together 60 years, but even at uh, 45, you know, big difference between being in your early 20s and being 45. So it's not the same thing. It's not like uh, just trying to get married again and seeing if this one works. I mean, the standards, my connection with the universe, my my understanding of, of my purpose, everything, everything is just, you know, in such a heightened uh, uh, place in my awareness. And so to... To find someone under those conditions when I did not want to be in a relationship at the time, but uh, just she was the coolest person uh, that, that I've ever met. She still is. I tell her all the time. She's my favorite person. And uh, we just always got along. She knew what she was getting. Like, uh, I, I told her off the bat, um, you know, actually, first I tried to talk her out of, uh, uh, out of, being associated with me because I was in such a low point in my life that I thought I was bad news. You know, I'm like, oh, I'm going through this divorce and, you know, the, the evil ex is trying to take all this money and I'm just drinking a lot, you know, and, you know, but, but through all that though, she knew that I was not a bullshitter. You know, I told her I pride myself on being honest, genuine. My integrity means a lot. And, uh, the, the evil ex questioned everything I said. You know what I mean? Like she didn't even speak the same language. And I, after being with her for so many years, I can honestly say I don't know her because most of the stuff that she had told me, she told me the exact opposite at a different point in our relationship. And she was always like that and giving me mixed, mixed answers. So whatever. I just know that we were not the right, um, the, the right match. But, uh, even when I was telling Katie about this, like, she knew when I said, you know, that I, I, I tell the truth and I'm not going to lie to you. She knew that. And I wouldn't have ever been able to be in a position to be ready to meet Katie until I had been through the, the shit and the 51 years, well, 46 <laughs> years of experience that I had. Uh, it, you know, I, I, any earlier in life, I wouldn't have, wouldn't have been ready to, uh, to accept what was in front of me and to be able to do the right thing with it. So we're, we're so happy. We're awesome, you know, uh, best friends. And, um, and I've never had a, a bond with anybody like that where I know like 
there ain't room for nothing to slip in between us. It's amazing. I mean, and, and you said it too, like you, you, unless we slide her in between, <laughs> gotta make sure, gotta make sure she's in between and then that's fine. Yeah. You know, it's, everything's good, man. No, it's, it's, inter- it's fascinating that you say that when you, you talk about finding that person that you think is going to be the one. And then, you know, I went through something similar to that before I met my wife, Courtney, you know, I was in a relationship for a long time and was an individual who was very duplicitous. Um, there was a lot of, uh, you know, emotional abuse that went on there and you find this other person. And I did, it's funny you say that. Cause I, it's, I did the same thing with my wife when I first met her. It's like, now, you know, you definitely don't want to be with me. I'm a fuck up, go away. Like, I don't want this, you know? And she was insistent and adamant and she knew that it was there. And it's having this unique bond. I mean, we've been, been together for 10 years now and it's just nice to find someone that you can connect with, you know, I'm, again, and I'll, I'll ask you about the action figures in a second, but like, I'm a huge nerd, you know, like I'm a star Wars guy, star Trek kid, wrestling fan, like all the things that, you know, uh, that encompass who I, I am as an individual and she's into all of it. I'm like, all right, what's the catch? You know, cause once you're in that relationship with someone who's not yeah. the person you want, you know, I mean, I'm sure, you know, it's like, what's the catch here? Um, but it's, it's, it's amazing I, to know that, you know, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, well, before you move on, I just want to point out, you know, on the flip side of that, when I think about the other, you know, the, my marriage that I had before, I was content. I wanted to work it out. Um, I was, I was committed to commitment and all of the uh, qualities that I wanted to, to have. And I didn't want to be a divorced dude. I thought, you know, not one of those. So, um, but when I look back at it, I was so like not happy now that I know what happiness is. And when I think about all the little things that bother the shit out of me, I know that a lot of people have to deal with that every day. And that's part of like what I'm telling you when they hate their life, hate their job or whatever. Cause I can say this, um, and a lot of people can relate to it. I got in so many, so many arguments, uh, over, she was like super insecure. And if there was another, uh, if there was a girl that was at all attractive or she would think that I would find her attractive in the mall, in a room, outside, anywhere, she would start a fight just by waiting till my eyes notice it. Like, Take a picture and it'll last longer. And oh, it would drive me so crazy because it made me feel like she didn't trust me. She don't know what she's got, what I'm, how, you know, and anyway, I know that like a lot of guys are, are in that position and I can't tell them how to get out. I'm just like really glad that I'm not in that anymore. There was so many red flags. We fought all the time before we even got married. And and so again, it's not like, it's not like it's just, um, Hey, let's, uh, let's try this again. It's completely different, a whole separate experience. And, you know, I, I, I saw Ric Flair's getting divorced for the fifth time. You know, it's hard, it's hard to imagine that all five of his, that he could have now, now I know, now I know I can tell it's real, you know, but, yeah. but for me at this point, you know, it's like night and day. It's like looking back at it, although there's so long and it's, it's, it's almost like distant memories. It's crazy. It's true. I mean, and, and it is. And I, it took me a long time to realize, cause I, again, like you're literally speaking my language right now because I went through a very similar experience to that. Even just having, a, you know, my wife before she was my wife and my girlfriend, she was a friend of mine in college and it was always the same thing. What, what are you fucking her mind? Like, no, like, I swear I'm not. I mean, she's, she's great looking. Don't get me wrong, but I'm not having sex with her. Right. Um, but I, it took me a long time to realize that all of those insecurities are things about themselves and their perception of reality is not mine. So I can choose right. to either live in their trauma 
and be a part of whatever it is that they're doing, or I can recreate and, and live in my reality and live in my perception. And you're right. Once you find that happiness, man, and once you're there, I like, it's just such a different experience. It's, it makes life so much more exciting and so much more rich in a way that I wasn't sure I necessarily knew about until I, I got to it, you know, and it's, now you got, now you got somebody that actually really supports you and wants you to get the most out of your day and you feel the same way, you know, and it's like, it's amazing. Like you can, you, it's just, it feels like you can just win all day with the, with the proper team and it's great. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's exactly what it is. It's, it's always a win and, and, you know, I, I wanted to ask you, I want to go back to something that you said when you talked about your purpose, what is your purpose, the way that you see it and the way that you believe it, how would you sum up your purpose or how would you describe what your purpose is? I think everybody on the planet, first off, has the, the, the purpose of observing because that's all we do all day, every day is we use our senses and we, we look and we learn and we remember, we smell, we touch. Um, what we're doing with all that information, I don't know. Are we reporting it back uh, in the afterlife, when we're sleeping? I don't know. I don't have all the answers. Um, but as an observer, I have a lot of experience and I feel like uh, I feel like I appreciate most when uh, fans or people tell me that um, that they're inspired by uh, my ways of life. I mean, it's awesome to hear, dude, you got a great five-star frog splash. I love your rolling thunder. But when people tell me like I changed the way they look at life uh, and they were able to grow um, based on something they heard me say, like um, that, that just goes like really deep. And in such a way that it, that it feels purposeful, you know? Um, I enjoy telling stories, you know, I've, I've on Instagram, although I'm not that good at posting that often, but, uh, I've been uh, doing it, uh, here and there. Um, I, on my YouTube, I just started, uh, my YouTube page has been around forever and I just started uh, paying attention to it again recently. And I've been uh, telling some stories that you have never heard before. <laughs> You've never heard these stories and I have so many of them. And what I'm doing is, uh, I'm putting a bunch of stories together for an autobiography. The ones that are on YouTube, I call it RVDology. Tell you a little bit about how I grew, you know, and, uh, from a lesson with some stories, you know, that I enjoy sharing that I know aren't anywhere out there. And uh, um, the stories that are on the YouTube are the ones that are more, at this point, are more uh, um, compatible for public consumption. <laughs> I have, I have so many stories that I don't want to force upon people on YouTube that are so far out there. <laughs> That's what you save the book for, though, right? That's what you put in the book. That's how yeah. you get people to buy it, right? Yeah. And, and yeah, and so far, all I mean, I've, I've, I've told, I've got so many stories. Same thing. Nobody's heard any of the stories that I've, that I've, uh, that I've got documented so far, and and I have so many more. It's memoirs, so I'll never run out but i'll also eventually um you know put in some stuff that people want to hear about that they're familiar with and want to hear my side of or whatever but sharing uh stories that people uh, don't know about is something that um picks my energy up and, and gets me excited and um you know even that the words are always going to be twisted you know everything's always taken out of context but even within that 
even within that, you know, um, I enjoy uh, sharing what I think people would find interesting. I myself spend a lot of time uh, researching mafia folklore history, nonfiction. Have have for years. I mean, I, I a ridiculous amount. I reread books sometimes three times or four times. Um, but I find it fascinating if there's a story, you know, with the same character in it, like that I know from someone else. Like, wait a minute, well, that guy was a Lucchese captain under, uh, you know, Anthony Gaspipe. I didn't know he knew Sammy the Bull. You know, it's, and I have like a and um, a head full of stories like that, and uh, and uh, they're 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 pretty pretty interesting if they're not then i don't care to tell them <laughs> now and let me ask you this so what is your, so i'm a big mafia guy too specifically i love the dynamics of like the american government in cuba in the 19 you know 19 early 1900s and in like 1950s and 60s um have yeah. you uh, there's a great book i'm going to recommend to you i'll send you the link for it but it's called uh, a havana nocturne it's by a guy named tj Oh, you have it. Oh my God. It's one of my favorite. I've read, I've probably read that book like three or four times. It's one of my favorites, but I'm the same way. I'm stuck on this idea of like the, 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 the facts of nonfiction and these stories are better than any fiction I've ever read because not only is it real, but like, I can't wrap my mind around the fact that people did this shit. So I love talking yeah. what's some of your favorite sort of mafia stories and, and what, like, are you a Cuba guy? Or are you more of like the New York mafia? Where are you? Where's your, more of your favorites lie? Yeah, so so to your point, you know, they have their tentacles in almost everything. And it's amazing that people don't know about it, how much uh, of the country they had corrupt and, and how much control they had over all the unions and garbage and restaurants and bars. There's so many. And the fact that, you know, there was like 20, uh, 24, I think, uh, uh, families that were all part of uh, La Cosa Nostra across the country, they were all like kind of under the same umbrella of organization. That's amazing. All that shit fascinates me. Um, and then, but more specific, I, I like West Coast. I mean, I like it all. Um, you know, uh, like I said, La Cosa Nostra, that's the Italian right. uh, and their associates. But I don't get off on a tree branch and start going into Russian mafia, Chinese mafia, you know, it's, it's, yeah. So, um, but for me, um, you know, I, I'm out on the West coast. I've always been interested in the West coast. There's so much out there about New York. I find that, uh, there's certain stuff from California, Vegas, that's not as, as, uh, widely available or as known. And, um, so that, you know, that tends to be a little bit more my favorite, but Chicago controlled everything west of the Mississippi. And that's, that was part of what happened on the West coast as well. Yeah. I'm also, I'm big, I'm a, I'm a Philly guy. So I'm big on the Philadelphia mafia, but I love, you know, my, my aunt actually lived in South Philadelphia when the chicken man was blown up. She was a couple blocks away. And when the windows, when the bomb went off at this front door, her windows in her house blew out. So like hearing these oh. stories, it's crazy, man. It's really a wild story. Yeah. And like, I drove by and looked at that house like probably 10 years ago or something just to mark out, you know, and <laughs> it's crazy. Wow. That's crazy. It's yeah. it's wild to hear that's because it's like, for me again, it's, it's the idea that like you read these stories, right. And you read these things, but they actually took place, right. When it's, it's one thing to actually read them, but to hear a real life recap, it's like, holy shit, that's nuts. But you know, Nikki Scarfo and, and Joey Merlino and all that crazy shit that happened here in Philadelphia. It's really like, Bro. 
I, I, yeah, Ralph Natale. I think there's a there's a huge untapped market for that as well. But yeah, I'm big on all that stuff, man. It's cool to, to learn that uh, that you're into that as well. But um, oh, yeah. I can talk about any, not any, but I can talk about Philly specifically. You know, we can talk about um, uh, Salva. Uh, what was I? Oh. Yeah, I just blanked the right before I said it. Never mind. I can't Never remember. Mind. I know he. I, I was about to say and then I forgot, but um, anyway, yeah, there's like every book that I could find, even just about about that, and uh, you know, Tony Bananas and like the whole. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot, and uh, and now the guys all have YouTube channels. You know, <laughs> it's amazing to hear them uh, on there. You know, talking like that, like uh, Bobby Luisi. You know, I think he was uh, um, in uh, in uh, in Philly before he was in Boston, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway. Um, there, it's real, and can you imagine like this this old dude in a suit s- sitting behind you at a restaurant that he could put a gun to someone who he's worked with for forty years whose head, blow it off, and then actually like chop the body up and put it away? Like that's just part of their job. And I guess that's that's a lot of what's fascinating is just so different than uh, I would think. It's the dynamics of it. It's the duality, right? It's this idea that a lot of these guys were family men. They had kids. They had normal lives. And it's like, then they go and they do these really horrific, ghoulish, vicious murders. And it's like, how does that, how does that jive? You know, how does that even tie together? But yeah, I could, I could, we could do a whole podcast. We'll do a whole nother episode, Rob, where we talk about the mafia and you come back on. That would be, that would be fucking phenomenal, man. I to say Salvatore Testa before, but you know, you know, I was saying that's but. that's who it was, Salvatore Tesla. Yeah, and I think about too when um, what was his name? The the, the, the gentle Don, Angelo Bruno, gets his fucking yep. head blown off in front of a restaurant in the middle of South I, Philadelphia. That's yep. and the, the photographs, and it's like this is just normal everyday shit for them. But I just, it's just so wild, man. But I'm I'm that's cool that you know TJ English. He's got a lot of great books. The other one that I really enjoyed was the uh, the book about the Irish mafia up in Boston. I think it was called Paddywhacked. Fantastic read. Yeah. 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 So good, man. Yeah. Now, one other uh, question. I oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. You, I, I you, you were cutting in there. Oh, uh, the the um, I'm, now I'm going to try to think of this guy's name. Um, the the guy that he's got a series of books and he's so conservative that like most of the interviews that I've seen him do, he just comes across obnoxious. But he does um the the, the killing the Kennedys, killing the mafia, killing uh, um, the, Bill O'Reilly. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, really good, really good book on, uh, well, both killing the Kennedys and killing the mafia. I don't know. I would recommend that to you, uh, because it talks about Cuba a lot and it timelines everything in a different way that I've seen before. So you kind of, you know, get a different perspective of what's going on in different parts of the country at the same time. And, uh, I really enjoyed that more than I enjoy him. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I'll probably enjoy the book, but not the person. Yeah. Well, now now that we're talking about Kennedy, I got to ask you, do you think there was mafia involvement in, with Kennedy? Did not, not a conspiracy theory thing, but just based on what you've read, because I have my own theories and my own opinions on it. What do you what do you think? Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's uh, enough evidence out there to, to, to definitely uh, think there's reason to believe there was at least some involvement. I mean, even even if you just think uh, that Oswald shot him himself, he was connected. You know what I mean? Right. Through his uncle, through Carlos Marcello, and supposedly he uh, he knew um, um, Ruby, Jack Ruby, you know, from before. And Jack Ruby was a mobster right. from Chicago. 
They came out to uh, Washington, D.C. to start the rackets. And, um, yeah, when Robert E. Blakely, uh, he says that when, when they did the, uh, the report, the Warren Commission report, that if they would have had all the information that they got after they completed it, they would have had a different conclusion on saying it was a lone gunman. And it's just, there's too many stories that have too many uh, connections and them all being there at the same time. Too many CIA agents that even tell stories that coincide and make sense and fit right in like a puzzle. It's yeah. it's crazy. And I, I do, I honestly believe just based on, cause I'm a big Bobby Kennedy guy too. He's one of my favorite political figures of all time. Um, but I do think that, a lot more of that murder had to do with Bobby that it had to do with John. And it had to do with the fact that they were like, look, we can touch you. We're going to touch your brother. You're next. If you keep it up. And I think really like that tracks to me a lot when I think about it in those contexts. But um, one question I was going to ask you, because again, I could sit here and talk to you about the mafia all day, but I mentioned before I was an action figure collector and I noticed that you are as well. You collect all of your own figures and there's probably about 80 that are out there. Is there any specific one that you collect that you have that's your favorite out of the entire RVD line that's ever been made? That you said I had, I had to have? No, that, that would, that's your favorite. Oh, um, I guess my favorite, um, I should look at the title, uh, because I'm not really sure if it's, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, there's the Elite, which is the new one that came out, and I, I, I guess I don't know, like, all the different titles, for, you know, Ring of Fury, whatever, but there's one where I have, it's like I have everything. Sometimes my my wrist tape is white, which is an RVD. This one's black. I got the briefcase, although it's not painted yet, I think. I got the ECW t-shirt and the chair and the belt. I think both belts. It's a some limited edition oh, one. Okay. I don't know. That's probably uh, my favorite, you know, that the new one came out uh, just recently and then so maybe 81. <laughs> and then uh, I had a uh, chase figure that was supposed to come out that was canceled because yeah. of a uh, Japanese outfit. And there was some controversy with the Japanese Korean uh, relationship and relation to that flag. And so they, they yanked it. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I saw the one I actually have the, the tiger stripes, um, but the one that I wanted was the, you know, I guess it was the rising sun or whatever they call it. But yeah, I ended up picking up the other one as well. But um, yeah, it's cool. I mean, ha I guess it's, uh, it's interesting. It's cool to see that you, you know, you sort of collected these, these pieces over the, over the years of your career. But one other thing I wanted to ask you about was the Van Damme lift. Cause I'm, I'm always curious about, you know, people who create these different moves and the, and the different workout positions. And things. How did you come up with that? Like, what was the process where you were like, "Oh shit, this could actually be something"? You know, like how? Where did that stem from? Well, just like most things, it was a uh, evolved process. Uh, I wanted to learn how to do the splits, you know, and I was like getting closer and closer. I got a sticking point. And then uh, I decided to try putting my legs up on chairs, my mom's kitchen chairs. And I was holding onto a broomstick. And uh, at first, I only do it for a little bit, but I could do it longer. And that actually got me past my sticking point. Looking back, I don't know if I would recommend uh, that, but I must have really held on enough to, to relax the groin because that's the secret. When you, when you stretch, you got to relax the muscle. And, and, the, and in order to do that, you have to develop this relationship where between the mind and body where your muscle trusts you enough to relax when you're pulling it because it wants to contract and protect itself. So it's a really 
evolved process, but I, I started doing that. Uh, I used to work out at the Y Center when I was a, a teenager, 15, 16, whatever. Started doing it on the benches there. Um, and the way I would do it at this point, I would have two benches, just like when I do the Van Dam lift, without weight, I would jump up and I would do, I'd throw my legs out and I would land like bam um, in the split. And I remember a guy at the gym saying, why do you do that? Like, I can understand if there was a reason for it, but it's, I mean, you're going to blow your knees out for what? And uh, so I started like grabbing weight and I started doing tricep extensions mm -hmm. when I was doing that. Um, and not really as part of my workout, more or less just well, a balanced workout, really, you know, but just trying to get it down and trying to find what it was. But as I got bigger um, and, and messed up and was able to lift a lot more weight, it was just for photo shoots. You know, I, I would be doing the splits and I'd have maybe two dumbbells like I'm doing curls. I just grabbed the dumbbell um, holding it in front of me. And as the weight got bigger, it was the feedback. You know, everyone's saying like, holy shit, you know, that's that's got to be a world record. That's that's what inspired me to, to try to um, get some promotion behind it. Um, I contacted, well, I, I, you, you probably saw on the ACW TV, I actually uh, officiated it as a lift in this oddball weightlifting organization uh, called the uh, All Round Weightlifters Association. And they were out of... Uh, somewhere up there in Pennsylvania, um, Lesbon, I think, but they came out and they officiated. They said, you know, the benches have to be this wide. You got to lift it this far. Boom, 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 all this stuff. And after I lifted it, um, it got published in their journal. And then, um, you know, the, the, uh, the myth, the mythology of it grows much bigger, though. People think it's in the Guinness Book of World Records. I argue with, I mean, I had someone argue with me because I'm like, no, that's, you know, I did talk to Ripley's, believe it or not, but it didn't go anywhere one time. But no, and, and the guy was like, dude, no, I saw it. It's in there. It's in there. Like, and I'm like, all right, if you say so. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's my move. I No, I've the one that, that created it, and I know where it's at. But sure, yeah, go ahead and you go ahead and have that if you want it. Yeah, it's fine. That's amazing. Yeah. Have you seen this guy, um, Juji Mufu? That's his name on Instagram. Jack, dude, he's been on American, uh, America's Got Talent and stuff. Yeah, he, that dude is insane. He takes everything to another level. Like all his videos, he's just like doing crazy stuff, lifting and throwing weights all over the place with a mask on of a horse. You know, oh, that's I don't, crazy. His, his videos are insane, but, uh, he can totally do the Van Damme lift. I have no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> That's a that's amazing, man. Now, I listen, I want to talk before I leave. I want to make sure I plug RVD CBD. Tell everybody where they can find that. I know you have your own brand of rolling papers as well. I want to make sure we get that in here to talk about that. Yeah. So uh, RVDCBD.com uh, and also on Instagram, it's RVDCBD. So, uh, it, you know, it's we've been helping a lot of people. And I even uh, during the pandemic, uh, our, our growth was stunted a little bit because, uh, we're still growing and getting out there into different markets, you know, with CBD, you can mail it, um, you can send it across borders, no problem, um, domestic borders. And so, you know, I want to be in 
every store everywhere. Uh, we do have the the best product, and I'm and it's awesome to stand behind that. Uh, and that's for a couple of reasons. One, uh, the integrity of my partners. They had their own. CBD already, uh, this company called Southern Hemp Co. And what I did was I partnered with them and then I tweaked the products, you know, and I said, I want to have the best pain cream. I want you to, you know, put more CBD and put more and put more menthol in. And I kept trying it and I wanted it to be something, you know, kind of like BioFreeze, but maximum amount of CBDs because we have our inside of us. Uh, what's called an endocannabinoid system, and it's what we use to regulate our body. It controls so much. Uh, it tells us how to heal. So when you take CBDs, your receptors uh, have the the um, endo, uh, or I'm sorry, the external CBDs come in and mimic what your own body does. They latch onto those receptors. They they tell it to heal. Um, but in addition to that, we also have sensors on the outside. That's why we use like a rub to treat like a localized area. And the menthol I have in there is, uh, is, it's, it's crucial. And the menthol helps deliver. It makes it soothe. You get that warm, uh, burn. You know that you get relief like right away and you already know that it's working. And, and then afterwards, a little while later, there's like nothing there. I try it on so many other people's, they leave the greasy residue. Anyway, Best products, and, and from all the reviews that I get, the tinctures, we have uh, smokable flour, we have gummies, uh, and we're always getting new products, and also venturing into different cannabinoids, too, which have different laws. But from the feedback, I know that we have the best product because everyone tells me that they tried other CBD products that didn't work, and, and that mine does. And so, you know, that's that's very rewarding. I'm, it's uh uh, it's a project that uh, uh, between that and my documentary Headstrong, where I start talking about concussions, um, I never have been part of uh, any anything, and that's related also. Uh, but I've never been part of something with more positive energy, and it's just you know everyone's appreciative. It helps people, and uh, and it's it's just true and honest, and I'm all about that. I'm looking forward to trying the products myself. Uh, I've been researching them pretty much all day. I'm looking forward to picking something up. But I just I wanted to say thank you for joining me on the show today to have this really incredible conversation. I appreciate your time, Rob Van Dam. Thank you so much. Absolutely. I'm at the uh, Real RVD on all the uh, social media and YouTube, too. Check out RVDology. Uh, uh, recent episodes. I'm going to spend some time there, comment back, talk to you on the uh, message board. And... Uh, Learn some stories you haven't heard with some life lessons you can use. Thanks, Rob. I appreciate it, man. Foundation Radio is hosted, recorded, and executive produced by Adam Barnard. The show is also produced by Sam Kreps. Special thanks to Greg Mead, Joe Keen, Jeff Quinn, and Dr. Ruth Almy. Our intro and outro music is produced by Dumb Ugly. Find this episode and our full archive at foundationradio.net. Follow us on Instagram at foundation underscore radio. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your favorite podcasts. This has been a Foundation Radio production. Butts Carlton, proprietor. Butts Carlton, proprietor.